Hey, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I was just looking at you like, are we recording? <laughs> Happy back, Labor bitches. Day. Oh, yes. Yeah, you're nicer than me. No. Oh. More formal. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I'm already in my disassociating state of mind with what we have to get through this next couple hours. I think this is going to be a long episode as we round off part three of the Pee Wee Gaskins disaster. Ugh. As you said, we have arrived at what? Escalation station? Oh yeah. Chug-a-lug, choo-choo, gone from Escalation Station. Oh, it's fucked up, everybody. This is not a lighthearted episode. No, there's going to be a lot of really dark stuff uh, that we're going to have to work through. So, if A, if you haven't listened to part one and two of our coverage of South Carolina's coastal killer, Pee Wee Gaskins, go back and do that or nothing we're going to talk about will make, will make sense. And B, definitely, this is your massive trigger warning. We're not going to be giving trigger warnings throughout because otherwise we'll be doing nothing but giving trigger warnings. So yeah, without further ado, Let's get into part three of Donald Peewee Gaskins, South Carolina's coastal serial killer. Lights out, campers. <laughs> now, if you guys remember from where we left off in part two... Peewee had just landed himself back in jail after he unknowingly assisted his carnival contortionist girlfriend, Helen McCoy, aka Zena of Zanzibar, aka Betty Jean Davis, with helping her brother, who was actually her husband, escape from jail. Now, miraculously, Peewee's lawyer was able to convince a federal judge to not add additional time onto the sentence that he was already serving for nearly killing his neighbor with a hatchet. And after spending three more uneventful years in the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary, Pee Wee Gaskins was released on August 6, 1961, at 28 years old, with a new suit, $20, and a bus ticket home to Florence, South Carolina. At first, he lived with his mother and stepfather at his childhood home in Prospect, South Carolina. But he hated his stepfather so much for being what he referred to as... Another peewee-ism. Gosh. A uh, quote-unquote dingle-buried asshole. <laughs> oh my gosh. That he knew he couldn't live there long. After one particularly close call where peewee threatened to kill his stepdaddy with a pitchfork... Hmm. He split and wound up renting a trailer on his Uncle Dewey's farm in Florence. He immensely enjoyed the reputation that his time in prison, and particularly his brutal murder of Hazel Brazel and escape, had gotten him around Florence County, but it wasn't long before he got bored of doing odd mechanic work to make ends meet and began breaking into homes to steal valuables. Around this time, 
Pee-wee bumped into a longtime friend of the Gaskins family, a reverend named George E. Todd, who offered Pee-wee a job helping him out with his traveling revival business. Basically, Reverend George would drive all up and down the coast of South Carolina in a big camper van, stopping at each town to hold a revival, then would accept donations for his ministry, for just about anything folks would bring. Shoes, clothes, appliances, and tools, then would resell those items in the next town over for super cheap out of the back of his van. Not too bad of a business plan, actually. And whenever Reverend Todd would be hosting a revival, more or less the entire town would be there. So while the Reverend preached fire and brimstone, Pee-wee slipped away to scope out the wealthiest and most unlocked homes, would wait a few weeks, then come back later to break in. He was particularly fond of the fact that Reverend Todd had no clue what he was doing, and in Pee-wee's words, would smile to himself as he rode along with the Reverend, wondering, quote, how Christ would have felt having a power man for a partner, quote. Shut up, Pee-wee. <laughs> oh, poor oh little Reverend gosh. Todd. So Pee-wee was the one accepting donations and reselling them? No, Reverend okay. Todd was, and that was how he made his living. Okay. And then Pee-wee was just stealing shit. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me think of what's the one bumper sticker? Um, oh, hold on, I'm so sorry. I have maybe it's this. One. <laughs> um, Jesus is my co-pilot, and we're cruising for pussy. Oh my god, <laughs> that's the next oh bumper sticker god. I'm putting on my mom's car. Well, Jesus was not Reverend Todd's co-pilot. <laughs> I don't think so. Oh goodness. Um, Reverend Todd's co-pilot was the one uh the thief the thief on the cross <laughs> <laughs> but oh, also did not end up in heaven that day in 1962 at 29 years old peewee got married again this is now wife number three to a 17 year old named jerry dolores According to Pee-wee, she was old by his standards. Oh, dear God. Oh. oh, my goodness. And she lived with her parents in Prospect. But he'd come around and visit her every few weeks. Well, that's nice. What a... Fuck. <laughs> he also developed another obsession with his 12-year-old neighbor named Patsy. Oh, God. Oh, fuck him. One Saturday afternoon... He watched Patsy's mom drive off towards town, and he knew Patsy would be home alone. The young girl answered a knock on the screen door to find Pee-wee standing calmly outside. He complimented her on how pretty and grown-up she was looking. Ew. And Patsy smiled and said thank you, expecting his next words to be asking for her mom. But her stomach turned to ice when the next thing Pee-wee Gaskin said was that he'd been with lots of women and that they'd all liked it. Ew. And furthermore, that he'd chopped one girl with a hatchet and beaten another with her hammer. Oh, my God. Uh, can Was you that supposed imagine? to be a pickup line? Right. Or... Hey, honey. I've hatcheted a girl. Hatcheted and hammered. Like. Oh. To a 
12-year-old he's saying this. <sighs> Delightful. Rooted to the spot with terror, Pee-wee took advantage of this moment and seized Patsy by the arm, steered her into a back bedroom of the house, and ordered her to lie down on the bed. Pee-wee then raped the 12-year-old girl, thinking he'd just leave when he was finished and that he'd intimidated and terrified her enough to stay quiet. But he would never know if this plan would work, because Patsy's period was looking out for her that day. And it took all of two seconds for Patsy's aunts who had stopped by to realize that something terrible had happened when they saw the pile of mangled and bloody bedsheets and Patsy nowhere to be found, and they immediately called police. Pee-wee and his reputation were well known in the area, and the ants immediately raised suspicion to law enforcement that it had been Pee-wee who had assaulted and abducted their niece. I'm sorry, if he was well known in the area, oh, what the fuck was her mom doing leaving her there alone when he's like a few houses down? Uh, not to victim blame. No. Not victim blaming Patsy at all because she's a child, but don't leave your children home alone when there's a sexual predator that lives on your same street. Like, uh, just why is a sexual predator allowed to live on the same street as a child? I know this is a different era. Right. Or Ugh. I'm I mean, sure I guess there is a beautiful deserted island out in the middle of nowhere <laughs> where they could spend their days. I mean, I guess he technically like wasn't a sexual predator, but he was a violent offender and was known to like break into people's houses mm -hmm. and assault so still like yeah common sense people within minutes the florence county police had burst into the gaskins house to find peewee pretending to be asleep in a back bedroom and a terrified but miraculously alive patsy behind a chest of drawers where peewee had stuffed her and ordered her to be quiet he was charged with statutory rape, and Florence County breathed a sigh of relief that this time, Pee-wee Gaskins was most likely going away for a long time. But, unsurprisingly, Pee-wee had other ideas. On the day of his scheduled arraignment at the courthouse, he opened the window of the second-story defendant's waiting room where he was being held, aimed himself in the direction of some box hedges, and jumped 30 feet to the ground below. Holy shit. If His skinny ass probably got blown around <laughs> before he ever made it. Like one of those pine needle feathers <laughs> just spiraling down. Knock him to his head. <laughs> Fuck. Before anyone noticed he was gone. Oh, God. Pee-wee had stolen a police car whose keys had been left in the ignition and abandoned it in a ditch outside Florence County. I just want to stop right here mm -hmm. and just remind you, like everybody listening, this is a real case. This is this not is not a, a cartoon. Movie. Yeah, this this happened. This is so cartoonish, like so wild and obscure. Yeah, it really is, and I don't understand why he was put. Did I have? Oh, I didn't put this in the script but 
he was put in the room without handcuffs on. Like they led him up there, opened the door and were like, here are the defendant's waiting room. We're going to uncuff you and then we'll cuff you again when it's time for you to go down for your arraignment. But you know that he is somebody who likes to jump Somehow, ship. I feel like he could have made the handcuffs work nonetheless. Yeah. But I do, I do agree. It's like... Yeah. Straight jacket him. <laughs> Put like... <laughs> bolt him to the floor truly get a <gasps> leash yeah <laughs> yes. he just said one of those backpack leashes <laughs> if anybody needed one it was him and my one-year-old son <laughs> made of chains attached to the giantest burliest <sighs> law enforcement officer Gosh. on the planet but they didn't take our advice and Mm-mm. Pee-wee gone yet again. Again. He was on the run from the law. This time, he landed in a boarding house in Robeson County, North Carolina, which was and is still part of Lumbee Tribal Territory. At this time, the presence of law enforcement was more or less non-existent, and the Lumbee preferred it that way, since, as you can imagine, the police were racist pieces of shit. Yeah. Unfortunately, that also meant it was an ideal place for another piece of shit, <laughs> like Pee-wee, to lay low. And his plan was that once it was carnival season again, he'd drive to Florida and work on the same circuit as his reform buddy, Paws. Paws. Big Hoss Paws, as you remember, air massive air quotes when I say buddy, but I didn't know how to put trauma-bonded sexual abuser slash card player slash wrote in their diaries together after lights out slash weirdness but weirdly friends i'm not gonna try to understand but yeah he was hoping to go find poss and during his time in robeson county peewee managed to find yet another 17-year-old wife. This is now wife number four, people. A Pee-wee Gaskins was not that hot. I am sorry. Let me just say, there is somebody out there for you. If if he can get a fourth wife. (laughs) Pee-wee fucking Gaskins. And I know it is a young and... Oy, oy, oy underdeveloped brain of a 17 year old that is going for a guy like him oh man but there's somebody out there for you guys and it's not peewee gaskins it is not this 17 year old child Mm -hmm. was named lenny i like that name lenny who worked at the hardware store and peewee and lenny were happily married for about three months before one afternoon Pee-wee told Lenny that he had to go buy some parts at the junkyard and left. As in, literally, pieced out of their home and Robeson County altogether with no warning. Lenny, if you're still alive somewhere, you dodged a major bullet. Good for you, girl. Yes. But according to Pee-wee, he didn't split because he quit loving Lenny, or any of his wives for that matter. The older he got, the more he was having that same old recurring feeling of what he called, quote, weightiness and bothersomeness 
stirring inside of him, and it made him so on edge and filled with anger that the only thing he knew to do was quite literally get away. So this, I am not, again, at all defending Pee Wee Gaskins, but he is experiencing this feeling of like rage bubbling up inside of him and the one tiny grain of like that I will throw him here Mm -hmm. is that at least right now he's feeling it and he's like oh I'm with this person that I care about I need to get away from them so he's leaving and it's very the whole thing is super fucked up because she's 17 like it's fucking messed up but it's interesting it's just interesting to note that that's what he's doing right now yeah and that's gonna change in the next like minute but yeah just seeing how somebody like that like rationalizes Mm -hmm. the decisions they make and the moves that they make all of that shit is just endlessly fascinating I mean, we could to do me. three full episodes just on his psyche, just on yeah. all the things that he does that don't make sense, but mm-hmm. then do make sense, but then don't make yeah. sense. It's just like his brain. Yeah. They make sense purely in the context of his, his life, mm-hmm. just like any other person who's ever been some sort of like insane criminal or crazy like political figure or dictator or whatever when you look at what they do it doesn't make fucking sense in the context of acceptable society because they don't operate within that and they're not yeah on our same like level of morals and exactly and and it doesn't justify it or you know, it doesn't excuse it from them. They still live in this world and we have systems of law in place for a reason and like agreed upon morals and all of that stuff. But I think that's why we as anybody who's interested in true crime find people like this so fascinating because they don't exist Mm -hmm. as a part of normal society and we want to understand just how their mind works and yeah that's one of the big things that always draws me back to these types of stories even though he's like the cancer of this world and i just want to understand <laughs> yes how cancer keeps growing and yes doing these things and i just want if he wasn't dead already mm-hmm. i would want to mm-hmm. squash peewee gaskins yeah. myself yeah peewee yeah okay so remember jerry dolores peewee's wife number three while he was working the revival with reverend todd so after ditching lenny he called her up and invited her on a road trip to find Poss and some carnival work in florida on which he tried to convince jerry that the patsy situation you know the 12 year old he raped. Uh, yeah, just just that little situation. <laughs> that had all just been a big fat setup because her aunts hated him. Oh my god. <laughs> In the end, though, it didn't matter because Jerry said either way she didn't want to be with a man who was always on the run from the law. Fair enough, Jerry. Yes, ma'am. 
Upon arriving in Florida, Pee-wee learned that Poss, his wife, and their four children had all perished in a horrific fire caused by a kerosene heater in their trailer while Poss had been at work. And he was the one who came home to find them. Oh my god. Poss had been so utterly destroyed that he had laid down across his wife's coffin at, in the funeral home the very next day and shot himself in the head. Yeah. That's really, really sad. And it seems to be, in my very unprofessional opinion, that loss of Poss mm-hmm. was kind of a final nudge for Pee-wee that pushed him over into this plus... It was plus, another pivotal person in his yeah. life that He had he this lost. bizarre, again, super fucked up and abusive, but like weird bond with. And he also looked at Poss as somebody that had this type of strength and leadership mm-hmm. to him. And when Poss took his own life... Pee-wee writes in his autobiography that he recalls being incredibly angry and disappointed and feeling let down that somebody he looked at as being so strong after, you know, the horrors of what they had been through at Mm -hmm. reform school and stuff had been broken. And that, again, is just very interesting to note because it's just another layer mm-hmm. upon the rapidly building layers of trauma brick that is peewee gaskins Goodness so gracious and that's just fucking horrific anyway i mean it's uh, tragic uh, it's, it's it, so tragic it's not like no that's just like yeah tragedy after tragedy and yeah. like Pee-wee, he dug his own fucking grave and got yeah. himself into some of the tragedies mm-hmm. he's yeah. been thrown upon, but mm-hmm. that that is sad. Yeah, and isn't it interesting, too, that, like, you see Poss and Pee-wee, you know, both people that were in that reform school that probably had fucking shitty abusive childhoods that ended up where they did, mm-hmm. that they still, I don't know much about Poss's personal life, but he was somebody that left that Mm -hmm. got a wife had four kids had a stable job had a home and that shows you that people can go through things that they go through and end up not being like peewee like you have choices to make so that is also interesting to know it's just kind of like two paths that diverged very very drastically and after this really horrendous news and Pee-wee and Jerry were no longer going to be in Florida, heading back towards North Carolina, just about to drive across the Florida-Georgia state line, blue flashing lights and sirens lit up the remote highway behind Pee-wee's 1962 Ford Galaxy. Pee-wee floored the gas until he was racing at 90 miles an hour with the police car tight on his bumper. 
when the tire of the galaxy blew out and the car veered wildly off the road, directly into thick Georgia swamplands, skimming and spraying water everywhere while Jerry screamed in terror. The moment the car abruptly stopped and started to sink in the chest-deep water, Pee-wee rolled down the window and slithered out as more law enforcement arrived on the scene. But not a single one of them dared to enter the water, thanks to Georgia Swamps being notorious as a home for venomous water moccasins and alligators. For the next mm, 12 hours all the way through the night, Pee-wee gingerly waded through the dense swamp until daybreak when he came across some railroad tracks and collapsed into an empty train boxcar headed back towards North Carolina. <laughs> Bitch is a cockroach. I swear! <laughs> what the fuck? Also, Jerry survived. And she was not, good. she was fine. But like a gator couldn't have even like bothered him. I, they probably was like, oh, it's one of our people. Yeah. They just no, let him. No, put a gator down. And... <laughs> don't do that to gators and innocent uh, snakes. I have beef with gators. I do not like gators. They terrify me. I don't know. They have four legs. My, my crossing is anything mm. more than four legs. Kind of like... Mm. <laughs> I'm thinking of the nasty ass centipede. See, to me, oh. Pee Wee's a centipede. Yeah, like one of those nasty ones that comes up out of your bathroom. What? Out of the bathroom Hold sink. On. Hold on, I'm getting chills <laughs> up my fucking neck. I gotta. <laughs> oh, man. Whew. Two days later, Pee Wee found himself back at the Lumbee boarding house. By this time, the elderly woman who ran the boarding house had seen Pee Wee's pictures in the newspaper and on television saying he was an escaped killer who had died in a Georgia swamp after a police chase. And when he came staggering into the yard, she gave Pee-wee... Oh, my God. <laughs> she gave Pee-wee a big hug and said she was real glad he wasn't dead. Ma'am. Why do I... Just... This woman has has lived a life that she was like, here is this murderer on the loose, but thank God you aren't oh dead, Sonny. Gosh. However, not so happy to see Pee-wee was his 17-year-old wife, Lenny. Especially after she'd seen on the news that Pee-wee had not been alone in the car that he'd ran into the swamp. Mm. And two days later, police exploded into the boarding house. <laughs> Lenny turned his ass in. <laughs> He's right there. Oh. Goodness. Pee-wee was right back in prison with an additional six years added to his sentence. This didn't seem to bother him too much, though. At this point, he had nearly an untouchable reputation. Literally, the gators yeah. did not touch him. No, I know, <laughs> for real. And he went out of his way to show respect to the head prison warden. In four years, at 35 years old, in 1968, he was out on good behavior. <laughs> oh my god. With a special condition that he could not set foot in Florence County for two years and a glowing note in his file about being successfully rehabilitated wow whose dick did he suck to Jeez. get that written on his note my understanding is that this was right at that time when they started making prisons about 
rehabbing and not punishment. And so because Pee-wee is a manipulative fucking psychopath, he was able to just play along and suck up to prison authority. And they're like, oh, look at him. He's rehabilitated. Let's send him on his way. Well. Well. But they regretted that. that. Exactly. Pee-wee rented himself an old tenant house and barn in Sumter, South Carolina, which is the county directly adjacent to Florence. He's like, if I can't step foot for two years, I'll be watching you. There's the county line right there. The tenant house is like, the edge of it is on the line. (laughs) Working construction by day and at night and on weekends doing his go-to side hustle of stripping, reworking, and repainting stolen cars from out of state. He would go to honky-tonk bars every now and then to hook up with women, and also spend a lot of time with his mother and his married daughter Shirley and her grand... not her... not her grandchildren, her children, Pee-wee's grandchildren. Uh, Shirley, who is also... A, apparently 17 years old and married what the fuck is up with people getting married at 17 this was not 1805 people were not dying at age 30 this is just i yeah anywho shirley was married with children and according to Pee Wee, he loved them very much and his life was calm and enjoyable. But despite this, that hot heaviness and bothersomeness that had followed him since childhood would always bubble up without warning. What Pee-wee described as, quote, a searing pain from his balls to behind his eyes and felt like it was going to tear him open to get out, quote. Whenever it happened, he would find himself driving up and down the Carolina coast for hours, becoming increasingly aware of the amount of young women who were hitchhiking alone. Pee-wee would pick up young women, make polite small talk for a few minutes, and then ask them if they had a place to stay, and would offer to get them both a motel room for the night. If she said no, he would offer her money for sex, and if she still said no or got freaked out, he would abruptly stop and kick them out of the car. Their refusals filled him with anger, and in his mind, who were they to think they were too good for him? And once he was alone again, would pleasure himself with intense fantasies of whipping and torturing them. Oh, God. While driving early one Sunday morning in September 1969, along the coast of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina... He slowed his car alongside a young blonde woman standing alone with her thumb out at an intersection. Her name was Angie, and she couldn't wait to get to Charleston to meet up with her best friends, and then they were all going to go to Miami to work on a yacht together. Pee-wee told Angie he'd be glad to take her to Charleston, and listened in silence for a while as they drove along a rural stretch of highway between Myrtle Beach and Georgetown to Angie's stories of working on a yacht the previous year and how much she'd loved it. After about an hour, he interrupted her and said 
He actually wasn't planning on driving to Charleston today, but he'd take her if she would join him for supper at a nice restaurant and they could get a hotel room after. Angie busted out in nervous laughter and quickly said, and no thanks. And Pee-wee said that was fine, but she'd have to get the rest of the way to Charleston on her own. Overwhelmed with a feeling of intense calm, he pulled off onto a dead-end logging road and shut off the ignition, turned, and stared at Angie. He smiled at her, and she smiled back. Then she turned and reached into the back seat for her duffel bag. In one swift motion, Pee-wee slammed his fist into the side of her head so hard it flung her against the dashboard then punched her in the head two more times until she slumped unmoving to the floor. Utterly calm, Pee-wee removed Angie's belt and tied her hands tightly behind her back, then used his own belt to tie a noose around her neck. When the stunned young woman began coming to and realized in horror what was happening, she yelled at the top of her lungs for help. With the end of the belt around her neck grasped tightly in his hand, Pee-wee got out of the car and yanked Angie by the neck clear across the seat so that she tumbled out the driver's side door and onto the ground. She struggled and yelled violently as Pee-wee reached under his driver's seat for a leather case with a zipper around it and pulled from it a giant knife, which is called an Arkansas toothpick. If you don't know what that is, picture literally a small scale sword. It is fucking terrifying. It is basically a giant Bowie knife, but mm -hmm. if a Bowie knife had a blade on both sides. So, Goodness yeah, it is not a fuck around to find out knife. Pee-wee placed the tip of the blade just inside the corner of Angie's nose and ordered her to shut up. There was absolutely nothing around at the end of the old logging road besides sawdust mounds and rusted pulley. And if it wasn't obvious at this point, Pee-wee had no intention of leaving the young woman to find her own way to Charleston. He tore off all of Angie's clothing and threw it in the trunk of his car, then forced her to perform oral sex on him. He then undressed and sat on top of her and bizarrely asked, quote, Do you mind if I suck your titty? Unquote. Angie was so thrown that even after the horror she had just endured, she looked at Pee Wee funny and said, Okay. In one swift motion, Pee Wee grasped the nipple of the young woman between his thumb and forefinger, pulled it away from her chest as far as he could and sliced it off with the blade of the knife. Angie's blood-curdling scream was choked with a sudden yank on the leather belt around her neck, and Pee-wee, still sitting on top of her, said, Don't cry, I'll share it, then shoved her own nipple into her mouth, forced her to chew it and swallow it. Angie vomited violently all over Pee-wee. Fucking good. And the calm he had felt evaporated at the audacity of her doing something that he said was, quote, 
so uncalled for. He stood, stomped on Angie's groin, and violently raped her. Afterwards, he gently picked her up and laid her inside the trunk of his car on top of her own clothing, told her that if she kept quiet and didn't give him trouble, that he would let her live. Silently sobbing, Angie said, thank you, and the trunk slammed shut. Angie remained utterly silent as Pee-wee stopped at a country store and gas station and bought a 50-foot length of clothesline, then drove back to the dead end of the isolated logging road. As he pulled Angie out of the car for the second time, she knew that she was not going to be let go. Pee-wee stuffed her own underwear into her mouth and then tightly gagged her with a strip of her own shirt, tied her knees tightly together with the clothesline, looped it around her neck, and drew her knees up to her chin until she was tightly doubled up on her side and completely immobilized. He then wrapped her in the rusted logging chain with the pulley still attached. In the final act of sadistic violence and degradation, Pee-wee took the 11-inch knife from beneath his driver's seat inserted it into Angie's rectum to the hilt and drug it upwards. So he basically performed a, you can't even call it an episiotomy, but that's what he did. I, with all my heart, truly hope hell is a real place and he is. Oh my God. I mean, the I, taquito, I or you know what I the gas station taquito I hope hell is spinning. in a place, and he is just gone from this, from yeah. everything, from existence forever. Yeah. That is probably one of the worst things that I ever read. Like in all of this true crime shit that we've sat through. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was like. <laughs> Ed Kemper throwing, lighting darts on fire and throwing them in his mom's head. Is it right? It, no, no. Do but I that agree did, with it? No. But, but that didn't like. But did his mom fuck him up a little bit? Yeah. And like. But this is so. It, I think it's because it's senseless. It's so senseless. Like he has no relationship with that person it is just the absolute worst i just horror. don't know how somebody can be so barbaric it's you're not yeah. even human at that point yeah. you are so far removed yeah Ugh. like i honestly feel feel nauseated yeah it's uh, i just and I wish that we knew, like, truly knew who this woman was, but her and many other women, he, Angie, he, I don't even know if that was her real name. He just says that that's what she said her Mm -hmm. name was. And so it's possible that he's just saying that and didn't actually know, but most of the women that he picked up and did this to, he didn't even bother to learn or remember their names. And we don't actually know who they were. And as far as I know, Angie's body was never found or 
her identity ever confirmed. And so this account of Pee Wee's first horrific sadistic abduction and murder Mm -hmm. is entirely from his own words. But I have no reason to not believe that this is what happened because of what he goes on to do and the person that he was. So just what the fuck. At the edge of the marsh was a floating six-foot pine trunk, and it was to this that Pee-wee draped Angie wrapped in the logging chain, then pushed the log as hard as he could out into the deep standing water of the marsh. He returned to his car, emptied her wallet of the $20 it held, stuffed all of her clothes, empty wallet, and a bunch of heavy rocks into the duffel bag, then slung it as far as he could out into the marsh. Once he was done, there wasn't anything to see but grass and the dark water. And Pee-wee knew that from then on, whenever that hot, burning bothersomeness rose up inside of him, he knew exactly what he was going to do to get rid of it. Fuck off, Pee-wee. Why couldn't you have just shoved the knife up your own ass and dove into the marsh? I agree. Uh, yeah, yeah, I... Pee-wee knew that going forward, he would have to be extremely careful with selecting victims and being prepared so that he could remain in complete control of the situation. No more stopping off at gas stations to buy clothesline and get gas with a person tied up in his trunk. He kept everything he needed in a duffel bag, along with an 11-inch knife and a rifle in his car. The items he stored in his duffel bag included, but were not limited to, duct tape, handcuffs, chains, rope, a hand pump, a blowtorch, acids, lighters, hammers, hatchets, awls, and cables, which he bought completely separately in different hardware stores and pawn shops. He also spent a great deal of time driving up and down the Carolina coast, pinpointing incredibly remote and accessible logging roads that went for miles deep into swamps and marshes along the P.D. River. And after about six weeks, the so-called bothersomeness came back. So he's having that cooling off and then ramping up period, like that's typical of serial killers. Six weeks, I feel like that's pretty fast. Yeah. Between September and Christmas in 1969, according to Pee-wee, he had abducted, raped, tortured, and murdered two more young women whose names he did not know in a manner pretty much exactly as he had Angie. The following year, he would abduct a young woman hitchhiking alone like clockwork every six weeks and maintain the exact same process subdue them by pulling out a pistol or knife, drive to a predetermined remote location, force them to undress, torture them, rape them, hogtie them, weight them down, and sink them into the marsh. The torture he inflicted was so sadistic that even the most hardened horror movie junkie would say it was a bit excessive. Some victims he would raise completely off of the ground, with cables that he ran directly through their bodies, and others he would pump full of water until they died. He made sure to remove their handcuffs before he sunk them, because 
He didn't want to unnecessarily waste expensive handcuffs. Fuck you, Pee-wee Gaskins. By October 1970, according to Pee-wee, he had murdered a total of 13 women. Up until then, Pee-wee said he'd never even considered someone he actually knew as a potential victim. But in November 1970, he would find himself crossing that line as well with his own niece. 15-year-old Janice and her friends thought Pee-wee was pretty cool. They all called him Uncle Pee-wee, and they would see him around just about every weekend at the drive-in in Sumter where all the young people hung out. They had a running joke that Uncle Pee-wee was too religious to buy them beer whenever they asked, and he refused. That is a hilarious <laughs> fucking joke. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> but he'd laugh and said he promised to buy them a six-pack as soon as they were actually old enough to party with him. Ew. You shouldn't be partying with... No. I don't know. One They're night in November... Ass. Yeah. One night in November, a car full of Janice and her friends drove up alongside Pee-wee in town and waved him to pull over. Janice had drunk some beers and was afraid to go home until she was sober. But the girl whose car they were in had to be home by 10. So could Janice and her friend named Patricia Alsbrook mm-hmm. come sit in Pee-wee's car until they sobered up, then have Pee-wee take them home? He said, sure. I bet you did. As soon as the intoxicated teenagers were in his car, Pee-wee got a very different idea for how the rest of the evening was going to go. He said he thought that Janice, who was very drunk and puking into a bag while Patricia held her hair, needed a cold shower, and that she could take one at his place. Instead of stopping at his mobile home in Sumter that both the girls were familiar with, he kept on driving past the city limits all the way to the ramshackle tenant house that he rented in the country. At the sight of the dark and creepy-looking house, Patricia was hesitant, but Janice was so drunk that she reluctantly helped Pee-wee get her inside and into the bathtub. Apparently, when Pee-wee started trying to unbutton Janice's shirt, Patricia said, um, let me do that, to which Pee-wee replied, I'm her uncle, I've been bathing her all her life. Just how <laughs> fuck I off? I I I uh, I'm stuttering. I remember. Are you thinking about what Giuseppe? Oh, my, oh no. yes, yes, that is some Leonardo shit. But that is so fucking gross and creepy she is 15 sir not only have you never given her a damn bath in your life you have like you don't give a child a bath past like age fucking five or whatever like ew that is disgusting okay piss off piss off i i'm just feel unwell At the grossness. And for some reason, 
this seemed to reassure Patricia. Oh my goodness. Oh god. It also just shows you like the fucked upness of the era that like an adult male is like no, I know what I'm like. I'm the grown up here, so sit down and shut up and let me give this teenager a bath. Like, I would have admitted myself into the insane silence yeah. back then. Jeez. Because I, 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 I can't. I can't. Like, what in the fuck? And you know that that bathroom in that house was gross as fuck. Ew. Like, I. <laughs> ew. But, whole, oh, you know Pee Wee wasn't scrubbing out that bathtub He's ever. He's got his shit stain gallery going on. Ew. <laughs> she would have been better off not getting in that bathtub. She's probably dirtier after oh, she got out of it. Ugh. So, after the two of them helped Janice shower, Pee-wee said he had some dry clothes that the both of them could wear laid out on the bed in the bedroom. Oh, how nice of them. And Janice could also lay down there to sleep off the rest of the beer. While Patricia was helping Janice to dry off and lie down, Pee-wee slipped out to his car and pulled the zippered leather case holding his 11-inch Arkansas toothpick knife from under the front seat. Pee-wee re-emerged in the doorway of the bedroom and Patricia froze in horror. At the sight of Pee-wee, completely naked, with a full erection and an 11-inch knife clutched in his hand. God's sake. He pointed at her face and told her to sit on the bed next to Janice. Be still, and he wasn't going to hurt them. He just wanted to teach Janice not to ever get so drunk again, because that's the way to do it. Right. Shut the fuck up. Goodness. When Pee-wee flipped Janice on her back and pressed the blade of the knife against her throat, she was instantly wide awake. No shit. (laughs) Suddenly, the back of Pee-wee's head exploded with pain. Mm -hmm. Badass Patricia Ann had clocked him in the head, and it was several minutes before he came to and realized the girls were gone. It is really just a shame that Patricia Ann had not ended it all Ugh. right then. Mm-hmm. Like, man, the world would have been done a favor. Gosh. <laughs> they had already made it far enough down the road that he probably wouldn't have been able to catch them on foot. But they were no match for his car and pistol. He overtook the girls, forced them both into the truck of his car, and drove them back to the tenant house. Oh, no. They were so close. They were so close. Once inside, he demanded that the girls remove their clothes and get back in the bed. When Patricia firmly said no, he slammed her in the face with the pistol barrel. Sobbing, Patricia began slowly undressing while Pee-wee stared at her, still holding the gun. Janice made a sudden dash towards the door, and right as she flung it open, the barrel of the pistol collided with her skull. She fell to the floor, and, satisfied that she was now unconscious, Pee-wee turned back towards the bed to find Patricia lunging at him with a two-by-four. Pee-wee ducked, and it missed him by a hair's breadth. 
and managed to grab Patricia by her ponytail, dug the pistol into the side of her face, and slammed her face down on the bed. He placed a pair of handcuffs tightly around her wrists behind her back, and still she fought him so violently that Pee-wee actually feared she might get out of the cuffs and overpower him. So he slammed the butt of the gun against her head again and knocked her unconscious. By now, it was nearly midnight, and Pee-wee had decided quickly what he was going to do. He gathered all of their clothing and belongings, laid an unconscious Patricia in his car trunk, and left Janice lying on the bed. He drove a ways further out into the country to an abandoned house he knew of that had an enormous septic tank behind it, covered with a giant cement slab. It was so heavy he could barely get it moving, but once he did, he opened it just enough to roll Patricia into the septic sludge. When Ugh. bubbles no longer rose to the surface, he slid the cement slab back over the top. God. So, just a tank of shit. Oh my gosh. Ugh. Back at the tenant house, he found Janice already deceased on the bed. He dug a deep grave behind the barn on the property, placed her inside of it, and covered it back up, first with the earth, then with old pine needles until no one would be able to tell the landscape had ever even been disturbed. When questions came up later, including from law enforcement, Pee-wee said sure. He'd seen both the girls at the drive-in that night, and they'd gotten into his car and hung out with him for a while. But he left the drive-in alone, because they'd seen a car with some boys they knew from Orangeburg and got in the car with them, and that was the last he'd seen of them. Wow. So did you question those boys right, and then like, just take the word of this little fucking maggot? Right. Did y'all follow up with that? Um, Apparently they didn't. Because both Patricia and Janice's bodies would both not be found until eight years later. And only then, because Pee-wee gave their location to police to make an attempt at a plea deal as he sat on death row facing the electric chair. He did give them the real location of Patricia, but the body they recovered where Pee-wee told them it would be and believed belonged to Janice was actually a different teenage girl who matched her physical description and who Pee-wee had killed on one of his many coastal drives. And the real location of Janice's body behind the farm property barn that he had been renting was far too close to other bodies that law enforcement did not yet know were buried there. This seemed to satisfy law enforcement, but not Janice and Pee-wee's family, and he swore to them that he hadn't killed Janice. She'd just gotten on a bus to California, and Patricia's death had been a tragic accident after they'd gotten in an argument doing drugs together. Fuck off, Pee-wee. This information that we're sharing with you now about Janice being buried behind the barn would not be shared until Pee-wee's autobiography, The Final Truth, was finally published in 1992. In December 1970, the body of a 13-year-old named Margaret Edwards 
Peggy Catino, whose father was State Senator James Catino and grandfather was the president of Clemson University, Dr. Robert Poole, was found dead in Manchester Forest, strangled to death with blows to her head and burn marks from what law enforcement believed were possible cigarette burns all over her body. God. This was the most that was officially released to the public because the details of her autopsy were so horrific that the judges sealed them to spare the family of the horror of what had been done to her. I, I can't even imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Just, ugh. Peggy's state of decomposition suggested that she had only been killed within the last five days, and law enforcement pressed hard on Pee Wee Gaskins due to his criminal history, but they could not crack his alibi that he'd been in Charleston working in a garage at the time they believed the murder took place, and he had, but he had also left. <laughs> Ultimately, a man by the name of William Jr. Pierce a 39-year-old former truck driver with a serious assault rap sheet from Gainesboro, Georgia, who had been in the Sumter area at the time Peggy went missing, had Peggy's murder pinned to him and given another life sentence while he was already in prison so that the case could be considered closed. But once again, years later in 1990, Pee Wee Gaskins would share in the final truth that he had been working in a garage in Charleston, but he had left for a few hours and had another mechanic swear to vouch for him that he had been there all day. And the burns covering Peggy's body were not from cigarettes, but were the result of acid being dripped on her one trickle at a time. Okay. Caitlin and I had to take a pause to come up for air so sorry if it sounds a little <laughs> disjointed right now, because we got to get through some more pretty rough stuff. Now we find ourselves in the year 1973. And it shouldn't be difficult for you guys to imagine that Pee Wee Gaskins, as a part of his whole package of piece of shittery, was an open and overt racist and in 1973, 22-year-old Doreen Hope Dempsey and her two-year-old daughter, Robin Michelle Dempsey, would cross paths with Pee Wee Gaskins. Doreen had been living with Pee Wee Gaskins' friend, Johnny Sellers, and his brother, Carl Sellers, in North Charleston, South Carolina. Apparently, Gaskins and Doreen had kind of struck up a friendship, and I'm not sure, it's a little uncertain whether or not they ever actually slept together. Sources are a little unclear about that, but either way, they had a friendly acquaintance, and Gaskins became very angry upon hearing that she had gotten pregnant by a black man. After finding this out, Doreen came to Gaskin's home in Prospect with her two-year-old daughter, Robin Michelle Dempsey, to speak with Gaskins about staying with him for a short time while she was pregnant with this current baby. 
this is really, really bad, guys. So we are sorry. Um, but Pee Wee Gaskins responded to this news by walking Doreen to the pond in his backyard where he drowned both her and her two-year-old daughter, Robin Michelle. <sighs> I feel fucked up. Yeah. This is, it's one of those cases where, like, the further I got into it, I almost regretted picking it because I didn't realize how bad. I just... Like, how dark. I mean, I'm glad how his depraved. name is not yeah. out there. Like, none of these piles of shit should yeah. be recognized. Yeah. Um, But it is amazing how he's yeah. not up there with, like, yeah. Ted Bundy or... Right, just in the, like, you know, those names that you just hear and you're like, oh, yeah, even if I'm not into true crime, I know that person right. is a famous face of Utter evil. piece of shit is so... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ugh. A toddler. Just... I, you know, where we said, like, I hope there's a hell. I hope there's a beautiful heaven and that oh, absolutely. Doreen and Robin and her baby that she was pregnant with are there together. It just, like, uh, I don't even know what else to say beyond hoping that and feeling immense rage and, yeah, at that <sighs> level of evil. But, yes... Now we move along to 1974 because mm-hmm. Pee Wee never took a fucking break. <laughs> no. I don't know. No. Uh, so we're in June of 1974 where Pee Wee shoots and kills his criminal associate friend, Johnny Sellers, in the back of the head and then proceeds to stab Johnny's girlfriend, Jessie Ruth Judy. After Sellers had asked for money, he was owed from the sale of a stolen boat. Pee-wee had feared that Sellers would reveal that Pee-wee was also involved in an auto theft ring. Jessie was murdered at the same time because she could have told the police about Pee-wee's criminal activities, including the murder of her boyfriend. So this almost sounds like Pee-wee is just kind of spiraling into like... He has gone from, I'm being super, super careful about who I'm killing. To, like, killing only Just, like, willy-nilly. Like, and then to kill Yeah. Like, like, he's like, oh, um, well, they might at some point turn me in to police, so I need to kill both of them. Like, Whereas, the like, hell? in the beginning, he's like, no, the police just don't like yeah. me. That's a made-up story. Yeah. It wasn't me. Oh, gosh. All right. Now we find ourselves. (laughs) And now we find ourselves in 1975, where a man named Silas Barnwell Yates was murdered in February 1975 by having his throat slit in a murder for hire scheme. According to forensics, uh, it did indicate that he was slit by a knife, but Pee-wee tried to say it was done with a karate chop. Fuck off, Pee-wee. You did not karate chop anyone's throat to death. Like, what the fuck? 
All I mm. picture is SpongeBob SquarePants. Like karate what in the chopping. Fuck? <laughs> and the reason for this individual's brutal murder was that Yates was in a dispute with his ex-girlfriend, Suzanne Kipper Owens, and she and her then husband John Owens sought out Pee-wee and paid him $1,500 to murder Silas Yates. <laughs> the karate chop. The karate chop. Hey, <sighs> God. Next, we find ourselves at the death of Diane Bellamy Neely, who was 25 years old and was separated from her husband, Walter Neely, who was one of Pee-wee's closest friends and criminal co-conspirator. On April 10th, 1975, Pee-wee stabbed Diane Bellamy to death and shot her boyfriend, Avery Leroy Howard. Among other reasons, Pee-wee murdered Diane because she had threatened to report to the police that Pee-wee was allowing underage teenagers to have sex in his house. Avery was murdered because he asked for money to pay attorneys and cover legal expenses following his arrest for fraud and auto theft. Pee-wee was worried that Avery would tell police about his criminal activities, so he had to go. The fuck? What in the fucking fuck? <sighs> so it's just now whims. Whims that he's killing people. And we move on to... A 13-year-old girl. Oh, my God. Kim Gelkins. Yeah. Who was stabbed to death to keep her from telling police that Pee-wee had moved her from North Charleston without permission. And to keep her from telling police, she was being sexually abused by several adult men, including, no surprise, Pee-wee. Yes. And it's my understanding that she was one of the kids mm. that would hang out at his place when he would just let kids come party there and you know why he was doing that is because he just was trolling for victims and so mm. yeah she just so happened to get caught in the crosshairs of his creepery want me to read the next one go for it and then we move on to dennis bellamy 27, and John Henry Knight, 15. They were half-brothers, and Diane Bellamy was their sister. Oh, Diane, who was also a victim of mm -hmm. his, right? Yeah, oh my god. Within minutes of each other, Pee-wee shot the two brothers in the back of the head on October 10th, 1975. He had promised to pay Dennis for some stolen guns, but when confronted by Bellamy, at his trailer home in Prospect, South Carolina, Pee-wee responded by offering to return the guns from the woods behind his home. He then took Bellamy into the woods to retrieve the guns, but, mm, you know, he thought, I'll murder him instead. Oh my God. <laughs> the 15-year-old John Henry Knight was directed to the same area, allegedly to meet his brother, but was also murdered to ensure he could never speak of the crimes. I mean, there's just a wake of bodies anywhere that he goes. Like, how the fuck has law enforcement not caught on to this yet? I don't understand. Like, I genuinely don't understand. Oh, dear God. Okay. 
Pee-wee was arrested on November 14, 1975, when a criminal associate named Walter Neely confessed to the police that he had knowledge of Pee-wee killing Dennis Bellamy and Johnny Knight. Neely confessed to the police that Pee-wee had confided in him to having killed several people who had been listed missing during the previous five years, and he had indicated to him where they were buried. Mm-hmm. On December 4th, 1975, Neely led police to land near Pee-wee's home in Prospect. It is there where police discovered the bodies of eight of his victims. Holy shit. He had a fucking graveyard out on that little tenant Truly. rental shit. Oh, my God. So. And that was his final arrest. Yeah, that was his final arrest. So, finally, it took all of that. Pee-wee Gaskins was tried on one charge of murder on May 24, 1976, found guilty on May 28th, and sentenced to death, which was later commuted to life in prison when the South Carolina General's Assembly in 1974 ruled that capital punishment was changed to conform to the U.S. Supreme Court guidelines for the death penalty in other states. That's a little disappointing honestly (laughs) before anyone comes at me for any shit about pro death penalty i am not as a rule but in this case i am so that's our (laughs) podcast and we can say what we want yep on september 2nd 1982 so fast forwarded six years gaskins would commit yet another murder for which he earned the title of the, quote, meanest man in America. I feel like mean is kind of a shitty little word. Like, my three-year-old... It, it glamours him. My three-year-old is mean. But he's also sweet. He's... Right. Yeah, but, like, mean is such a not... I don't know. The I just don't like that. That America. just feels like, gross. Yeah. You're not mean for killing somebody. Yeah. I I don't know. I don't like that. It's not the right superlative for him. No, just saying he's mean. It almost is like endearing in a way. Yeah, exactly. Like he's a grumpy old man being like, your kids got off my lawn. Like most steaming piece of foul smelling shit in America. With a little mix of C. diff. Mm. Yes. While incarcerated in the high-security block at the South Carolina Correctional Institution, Pee-wee killed a death row inmate named Rudolph Tyner, who had received his sentence for murdering an elderly couple during a bungled armed robbery attempt of their store in Merle's Inlet, South Carolina. Pee-wee was hired to commit this murder by Tony Simo, who was the son of Tyner's victims. Can we blame? Oh, no. No. Mm-hmm. No. If I knew that there was a peewee in a prison and there was some little bitch in there that had violently murdered my parents, you better bet I would be sliding into his DMs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't give him commissary money. <laughs> no. Can't say I go that far because I'm... Mm. But, like, really, though, I mean, also, what the fuck is this story? Like, I cannot. (laughs) I'm so confused. 
my gosh. Just uh, wait, though. Just, yeah. Pee-wee initially made several unsuccessful attempts to kill Tyner by lacing his food and drink with poison before he opted to use explosives to kill him. Oh, dear God. And it's my... So, okay. I just have to say that from reading the autobiography, the part where he's trying to poison Tyner, this was actually over months. He would come up with crazy ways to A, get poison into the prison, and then he would have to get it into Tyner's food. So he would basically like, he had all these little webs and networks of people that were working for him to get poison into the prison get prison into his food and make sure that that food went to Tyner's cell because they both were in like solitary, very isolated areas. So the fact that Pee-wee was able to do this is like sadistically incredible and just shows you like the power systems in play within prison and how it really is its own like little world. But he would try to poison Tyner with poison that um, the the son would send him or would acquire for him and he'd be like I've got this poison it's strong enough to kill a horse he would send it to peewee in like some sort of like care package or whatever the fuck and then peewee would get it into Tyner's food but it wasn't actually strong enough to kill him and it would just give him like horrible diarrhea but you know what? <laughs> Not a bad plan. No, but it after several times of this, Peewee was like, fuck this. Explosive. I'm taking baby. this into my own hands and I'm making a bomb. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. So to accomplish this, Peewee rigged a device similar to a portable radio in Tyner Cell. And told him this would allow them to communicate between cells. So, you know, just a little, oh, I yeah. want to talk to you. Just, just right. Up. Let's pass some time. And he'd also been manipulating this bitch that they were friends mm-hmm. and being like, oh. And Tyner had been like, oh, yeah, man. Like, I'm so lonely in here. Like, it's so nice to have someone you, to pal. talk to. And P was like, oh, yeah, buddy. Yeah, like, nice talking to you, too. Meanwhile. <laughs> <laughs> slipping fucking horse poison How are you feeling today <laughs> oh, not dead oh. when Tyner followed Pee-wee's instructions to hold a speaker Jesus <laughs> Jesus Christ with C4 plastic explosive unbeknownst, unbeknownst <laughs> to him to his ear at an agreed time Pee-wee then detonated the explosives explosives from his cell how and, and it then killed tyner but like how wh- i so the at this point in the autobiography when it said that he detonated the explosion said the entire prison is shook on the fucking foundation <laughs> That is a cartoon episode. Yeah, that like the entire prison shook on the foundation and 
Tyner was just like vaporized. <laughs> I should not be laughing. Uncomfortable laughing. Uncomfortable laughing. Hey, Pee Wee later said, <laughs> quote, the last thing he heard was me laughing. Oh my God. Oh my God. Hell. So yeah, Pee Wee was tried for Tyner's murder and sentenced to death. It was the first time in history of South Carolina that a white man was sentenced to death for the murder of a black man. Oh, wow. How is that? What That is, first of all, horrifying because you know that I, we don't need to get into a history lesson right no, now, but right. you know that that is fucking bullshit. That, that he's the first. The first in, what, 1980 fucking two. Like one of the top thing, like reasons why he should be killed. No, I mean it's on the list, right. but it's definitely not top ten. Ugh, we could devote a whole nother episode to that, but yeah, <sighs> man, wrap it up for us, Jen. I'm just gonna wrap it. We're gonna bring it around the track. In his time, awaiting the electric chair on death row, ultimately. Pee-wee Gaskins said he committed between 100 and 110 murders, including the murder of Margaret Peg Catino, the 13-year-old daughter of then-South Carolina State Senator James Coutino Jr. of Sumter. Because remember, he was never actually convicted. I do believe that he murdered her because... The severity of it. Yeah, I... He just strikes me as one of those people that is just like, I don't give a fuck and I'll tell you if I did or didn't do it, and you know? I, he also doesn't strike me as someone taking responsibility for something he didn't do. Like, he just yeah. doesn't have time for that. He, yeah. He's done his own shit and right. that's what he will own that up he to. genuinely doesn't give a shit. And historians have widely disputed mm -hmm. these claims about his responsibility for Peggy Coutino's death and the number of murders that he committed. And there's not any hard evidence to support that actual number that he gave. But again, this is just our opinion based on our limited knowledge of Pee Wee Gaskins it wouldn't surprise me if mm -hmm. everything he said was true as fuck. So let us know what you guys think. Yeah, ex please do. But regardless whether it was one murder or 110 murders, on September 6th, 1991, at 1.10 a.m., Pee-wee Gaskins was executed in the electric chair. Hours after he survived an attempt to take his own life by slitting his wrists. His very last words were, quote, I'll let my lawyers talk for me. I'm ready to go. Quote. He could have blown himself up. And he, he could chose have. to slit his wrists no, unsuccessfully. He could have. <laughs> also, 1.10 a.m.? 1.10 a.m. What schedule are they running? I think that was maybe the person that had to flip the switch was like, did a Starbucks run and was a little late. <laughs> I'm stuck in traffic, guys. Oh, wait in the drive-through at Starbucks or Krispy Kremes. There's a Krispy Kremes in Florence. But, ah, uh, fuck. Yeah, that's it, guys. 
I don't even have any. Like, I feel like we've talked all that we can about him. I don't yeah. want to, like, say anything else mm-hmm. about him. Um, isn't, but- isn't it just so interesting how, like, the span of somebody's life, how they can go from... Remember when we were first talking about him and, like, the stuff that he goes through as a child and you're, like... You can feel such My deep, heart hurt yeah. For him. Like you feel such deep empathy for the child, and then they become the perpetrator, and you're like, "My well, fuck, soul burns." Yeah, yeah. Thinking about what he did. Yeah, it's by far one of the most horrific cases that I have ever ever come across, and it's also extra fascinating to me because all of these places that we've mentioned are places that my dad grew up, my grandparents grew up, that I spent a great deal of time in in the 1990s when I was growing up. But uh, apparently his daughter, Shirley, Mm -hmm. still lives in the area and basically did everything that she could to remove herself from being associated with that name. Bitch, that would have started by me skipping town. I know, for real. Like, no shit. But, yeah, she doesn't do interviews. She's not done anything like that. You know, she just kind of... I mean, good on her, because it's not like yeah, he was truly, like, truly why? part of his life. No, life. like, he was maybe around a little bit and saw him. And but it, yeah, he deserves no... The only reason why I enjoy going over cases like this is because, again, like, you need to understand why people do things like this. Yeah. To prevent. Or, like... Oh, yeah. To... And I think it, in a weird human way, it gives us a false sense of control Mm -hmm. over these types of situations. Like, we think that by listening and reading about things that are the worst of the absolute worst of humanity, we can ensure that we won't find ourselves in the same type of situation. But the truth is that there is always just evil in the world and we don't know what it's going to present in, like what form it's going to present in. And Pee Wee Gaskins was apparently... Whatever he did, he was charming slash and or attractive enough to people to have four damn wives and constantly hook up with people. So, like, and then he was possibly one of the most prolific serial killers, like, ever. So, y'all, don't hitchhike. Don't, please. If you're getting in an Uber or a taxi or whatever, please have receipts. Please have your phone with you. Yep. Please be prepared to yep. shank somebody in the eyes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if somebody is attacking you and you get the jump on them, don't just leave them laying on the ground with a weapon next to them. <laughs> I'm not saying finish them. If you can, that's great. Swing first. <laughs> Always swing first. Always fight. Never go to a secondary uh, location. Um, and I Ain't am... no dick worth no. getting in a car with a man you don't know. Certainly going not. Going anywhere. Certainly mm-hmm. not. As much shit as we talk about attractive men, it is certainly not. And I don't even know. There's so much information on potential victims of Pee Wee Gaskins that 
forgive us, there may be names of people that we did not even mention. Mm -hmm. We did our absolute best to give you the most accurate information to our knowledge and research. But (laughs) send Genevieve some love for (laughs) pouring her time uh, and commitment into reading this absolute piece of shit's yeah, yeah. work and like she she truly did deep dive yeah. into this and i and we not gonna lie to y'all that last little section came straight off the wikipedia because i was so burnt out after going through all of those murders that i was like i don't even care anymore wikipedia how he was convicted and executed <laughs> He's dead, everybody. And yeah. that is the case of Pee Wee Gaskins. <laughs> Just became Jewish for a I'm ready to go get drunk. <laughs> oh my gosh. Anywho, if you have um, decided to remain with us after the trauma of the last three episodes we brought you, we're going to bring you a case next week that no other to our knowledge no other major crime podcasts have covered because it is unique to the county that we call home and has been sent to us and talked to us by i don't even know what i'm going to say but multiple people that we know have brought this up to us and Again, happened in the 70s. <laughs> but Wasn't it 69? Amaz- or was 65? it 69? I don't know. 65 or 69. I feel like both of those decades are just fucky. The 60s and the 70s. Or it's all bad. You might be right. 79. Fuck me. It's something. Oh, well. It was one of the, the bad decades. But so yeah. We, got- mm-hmm. uh, we had a terrifying predator on the loose during an ill-fated prom night and that's all we're gonna tell you but we're gonna be putting out some we hope completely original uh case content that you haven't heard anywhere else before so be sure you come back to hear our coverage of that case and until then you know, watch some Disney movies. <laughs> yes. Purge the darkness that we just Purge spoke the darkness. to you. Yeah. Um, go ahead and give us a follow on Instagram and TikTok if you haven't already at mm-hmm. Camping is Cancelled. Please feel free to send us case suggestions like mm-hmm. we just spoke about. Yes. Um, to our uh, Camping is Cancelled at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Um, if you feel so inclined to support us and our drinking problems <laughs> after this case oh, um feel free to su- subscribe mm-hmm. to camping is canceled over at patreon mm-hmm. and yeah we we truly thank you guys for supporting us listening yep. to us putting up with us and we look forward to i mean i know it's still murder but dialing yeah. it back a little bit yeah, next week not having to talk about 11 inch knives and acid and such so yeah (laughs) my body feels so (laughs) icky okay guys bye. bye